Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. It is the middle of June, Bruce, which is usually one of the quietest times in college football of the year. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been as busy as I've ever been. I know you are too. It's just been an explosion of news in college football. And let's talk about a, um, a, a pretty explosive story that emerged on Wednesday in terms of recruiting violations at Arizona State that uh, you and our ASU writer, Doug Haller, have been uh, on top of. So uh, Herm Edwards obviously has had an interesting time as the head coach at ASU. And uh, look, I think he really has handed the keys of his program largely to his defense coordinator, Antonio Pierce, who I think has been promoted four times there. And there has been a lot of chatter on the West Coast, especially over the last week, about um, some questionable recruiting uh, tactics. And one of the things that has come to light, as we reported at The Athletic, was that Arizona State was hosting recruits on campus and in their building during the dead period that was imposed related to COVID throughout. And this was like, it was interesting. After our story went up, I got a call uh, last night, which being Wednesday night, um, from a coach who's in the AAC who said, who was like, we heard about this because we had two kids we were recruiting or are recruiting who just matter-of-factly had talked about how they had been at ASU. And we're like, what? You know, and this was back much earlier in the spring way before you know this month started obviously um and this coach made an interesting point he's like you know a lot of kids most kids you recruit do not know the ncaa recruiting rules they do not know the recruiting calendar they they just don't understand it it's like something where it's complicated for high school coaches to know so what you're doing is you're going to have family members in some cases and recruits you know, in on basically a, a somewhat of a secret, um, that's probably getting out. And there, what we have found, what Doug and I have reported, and we've talked to a bunch of former uh, ASU coaches and staffers, as well as, you know, I've talked to a lot of people around the Pac-12 and coaches around the country. Um, this was kind of an open secret on that was... Um, that was out there. And so it got into a little bit as we had reported of what one former ASU coach had described as a quote, rogue culture. Um, and had corroborated that, uh, at one point, uh, a year ago, ASU forced out three assistant coaches who were guys that this particular person said were of high integrity and wouldn't cheat. Um, and they were guys that were fired. And this person felt Antonio Pierce, you know, was really the one that Herm Edwards leaned on a lot. And it was like, basically, these guys were guys that they knew um, were, wouldn't probably do some of these things. And they replaced them with younger coaches who would kind of just basically do whatever they were told in that regard. And what you've gotten is some really, really dubious um, 
conduct in it. And um, one of the things we'd reported on was like this coach had talked about personally witnessing an instance last season in the 2020 season uh, where he ran into a recruit being brought up like backstairs by some recruiting assistants during COVID and they were taking him to meet meet up with Herm and this person was like it was blatant um, you know and so there, that seems to be the tip of the iceberg here and one of the one of the um, coaches I talked to today made the point it was like here you're having all this stuff go on in the Pac-12 with ASU and you're you know it's it's out there now and it doesn't right now it doesn't rise to the threshold of some of the stuff you see at some other like bigger programs like people have made this comment to me in the conference it's like it's not like Arizona State has had like a top 10 recruiting class they had the eighth ranked recruiting class according to 247 last year so it's not like Yes, they landed Jaden Daniels, who was who has been a terrific player for them. It was a big get for them. But it's not like they've been recruiting top ten classes in the wake of all this. So it's going to be really interesting to see how much of this pours out. But I think it is going to bring to light. You know, it's it's a really interesting situation because I know you and I have talked about this a lot over a couple of years when Ray Anderson, the Arizona State AD, hired Herm Edwards. He boasted about how they were going to do things a certain way and really look towards this, you know, kind of almost like an NFL model and where Herm is delegating a lot of stuff. Well, the NFL model is one thing, but the NCA is going to view it as head coaches are responsible for what goes on in their program. Now, one of the things I had heard from a former ASU staffer was, you know, some of the guys who are, you know, deeply rooted in the NFL world, but maybe new to college coaching, and that's that was the case of you know what's the leadership at ASU right now is they may not really they think these some of these rules are really stupid they may not respect them and it sounds like they didn't care about bending them a couple things that that really stand out to me for one i mean you know, for the most part, people are focused on the, when you talk about a recruiting violation, it's somebody trying to get an edge, it's a competitive advantage. Um, but in this case, I mean, we're talking a kind of a blatant disregard for health and safety. You know, all, all the teams in the country last year were trying so hard to basically form a bubble around their football program to keep, uh, you know, people from coming in that might um, spread COVID. And I, we don't know. I don't know what the you know the order of events was here with when the recruits came in and went. But ASU had one of the worst outbreaks in the country last year. They had to cancel three straight games. Herm Edwards tested positive. Half the coaching staff tested positive. I remember uh, when Matt Berry, the Sports Center anchor who went to ASU and is clearly connected there, tweeted early on during that stretch that they didn't have enough guys on one side of the ball to practice. So. They were having massive COVID issues, and then amidst all that, you know, based on the description, it was just kind of like free reign. Like they're bringing in recruits and their families and having visits just like normal times. They're hiding recruits in the in the stadium suite during a game. Um, you know, that put the players and the staff in the building in danger. And I think that because of that, you know, the NCA is going to take a much harsher look uh, view of this than just like. You know, uh, they they brought in some kids when they shouldn't have. You know, if it were just like a run of the mill recruiting violation, 
Um, and then, yeah, you, the other thing that really stands out to me in your reporting, Pete Thamel has a story about this on Yahoo, um, is you, you rarely see a situation where so many people are so eager to dunk on the ASU, to, to, to out them. Like usually, you know, there's this like unwritten code where everybody knows who's cheating, but nobody turns them in or nobody rats them out. You've got former uh, staffers there, guys, like you said, they've run off guys who didn't want to be part of this, who are jumping at the chance to talk to the NCAA, who are eager to let somebody know how shady it was there. And, you know, we, like you said, like what we've reported so far is probably just the tip of the iceberg in terms of this rogue recruiting uh, operation that was going on. And yeah, this is where that, that infamous press release, when, and, for, and by the way, for people who don't know or don't remember, Ray Anderson, the AD there, was Herm Edwards' agent when he was an NFL agent. So first he hires his former client, and then they put out this press release that makes a point that not just they hired a coach, but they are going to invent, what. and I looked it up yesterday, what they called the new leadership model, a new model for college coaching, where the coach is the CEO who is you know, the leadership guy, the big picture strategy guy. It was their admission that Herm has no college coaching experience, and yet they think this is going to be great because they'll just structure it in a different way where he is the big picture guy and the coordinators and the assistants are maybe more empowered to run the day-to-day. And based on this early description, I mean, it just blew up spectacularly. So I think they're in big trouble. And, you know, without knowing all the full details yet, it just seems like when you've got this many, when they when the compliance people are already, the NCAA is already there interviewing people, uh, there's a reference in one of the stories to there being video uh, you know that there was vi- well the video so the video part of this I can get, get yeah. into this because this is something we talked about you know a little bit internally is their security video yeah. so and one of the coaches has said one of the ASU coaches has, has said look you know you're going to get caught at this because there's security video um, unless you're going to erase the security video which puts it into another threshold um, that is kind of mind-boggling that this now keep in mind this is not 2020 obviously was not a normal season so i know you and i talked about this uh, a day earlier about well how could people not in the building see well remember it wasn't like you're having the normal uh foot traffic you're having the normal day-to-day where you know certain people are around there's there's receptionists there's admins you know whatnot this is a little different dynamic, but you still had the security footage. And so, you know, as um, Doug and I had talked about, there have been, um, you know, what we have heard of this this packet that has been sent into, from a, a whistleblower inside the program. Um, you know, somebody had said to me, I don't know what's in the packet specifically, but what I've heard, it's like three dozen pages and that there's some receipts in there. That could be very, very damning. And as you mentioned, there is a lot, and I, you know, this goes to a couple of the people I spoke spoke to who fit in this category, who are not going to hold back and not going to lie to the NCA when they get contacted about it. And also, and this point got made to me by a coach in the Pac-12, is that there's a lot of kids that ASU probably did not sign who were part of elite, some illegal recruiting tactics. Those players are going to likely get contacted and they are going to be told if you lie to the NCAA, it causes all sorts of problems for you. There is no 
just like the for, a lot of the former assistants do not seem to have any allegiance right now to the regime at Arizona State, there's not going to be much allegiance to, to players who may have been recruited there, were a part of some sketchy behavior, and then they may be, you know, turned to. Now, I don't know how long that process, because that's not something, here we are sitting here in the, the middle of June, um, you know, Pac-12 Media Day is like five weeks away, camp is six weeks away. I don't know how quickly this all ramps up. I don't know if it's go like, you know, not to show our cards too much, but I know Doug and I have a lot more in our reporting that's like it's not ready what to a tease. go yet. But there's but there's there's a lot of there's a lot more stuff that we have. Um and I'm sure that there's a lot of other people, you know, who are also now in on this, especially you know, not to give away show too much of the hand, but it's like We'll, we'll talk about this for a second is there's a lot of you know a lot of parts of this that have tentacles into southern california um recruiting and seven on seven and high school football and so it's not going to surprise me if you know some newspapers get involved in the reporting as well um and so it's you know it's fair, it's pretty unwieldy in terms of where i think this story covers and where it may end up going what I'm, it's going to be fascinating to see is how does Arizona State, because again, the AD, as we just talked about, Ray Anderson, is really tied into this in a way that a lot of times ADs are, but not to this degree. And so, you know, what happens um, in this? And I, I don't want to speculate too far beyond that, but, you know, we're not that far from training camp, and this thing is really kind of exploding. And again, as our story that we that went up on the athletic on Wednesday points out it was like it's there's direct ties to Herm involvement in yeah this. I wouldn't try to predict how the NCA part of it plays out because as, as we've talked about a million times it's completely unpredictable and it might take who knows if it'll take them six months a year two years however long to do that investigation but in the meantime you know we've seen schools handle this differently but it's generally based on how successful is the coach you know, we see in basketball, you know, Kansas is going to protect Bill, fight for Bill Self to the death. Arizona tried to fight for Sean Miller for years until he stopped winning as many games. And then in football, like we saw Ole Miss stand by Hugh Freeze during that thing until, until he had his other uh, scandal. But we just saw Tennessee toss Jeremy Pruitt aside uh, once some, something kind of like this, you know, once kind of similar where there was a whistleblower and suddenly they didn't have any choice but to investigate themselves. So, um, you know, Herm has given them optimism, uh, but it's not like he's really won anything of significance yet. There was a lot of optimism that this could be their breakout season, but we haven't seen it yet. And in fact, you know, ironically, the thing that he has given uh, the most, uh, that, the, that the ASU fans have been most excited about is the recruiting. And now we're starting to find out that was a house of cards. So I can't imagine... There won't be some 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 pink slips here, and it's just a matter of how high up does it go, you know. If there, you know, if there's assistants, Antonio Pierce and whatnot, who are directly implicated, they're probably going to get fired. Is Herm going to get fired? I think that depends on whether this gets pinned on, you know, whether they can prove that he had knowledge of these things or that he was directly responsible for them. If he if he needs to be fired. Then I think you got to look at the AD Ray Anderson because this was his hire. He this was his idea. 
and you know you would think he'd be held accountable for it as well. So um, could be just a just a complete shakeup at ASU. Yeah, and I again I I think it's it's going to be interesting to see how they handle it because as we we're saying it butts up against training camp and I don't know like can you suspend assistance pending an investigation if it's you know again it's how quickly does ASU kind of jump into this cuz they're already there's already an investigation the NCA is already involved the compliance people at ASU are already involved um, you know, put aside the just what it does for the recruiting part of it for the class of of uh, 2022, but just in terms of what it means for the guys on the field. And then there's also the specter of okay, well, there are players they recruited um, and have signed. What does it mean for their eligibility? Yeah, potentially. Um, you know, there's just a, there's a lot of stuff that ASU compliance, especially, is going to have to try to get to the bottom of. And they're going to have to, I don't want to say they're going to have to get to the bottom in a hurry, but the question is going to be how does, um, you know, it's like we haven't mentioned this part of it also. You have a new Pac 12 commissioner who is starting in like 13 days, right? And you have Ray Anderson who was pretty prominent in terms of the the president of the school at ASU um those were strong voices in in the Pac-12 in a place where you didn't have a lot of that's, strong that's voices. something else I wanted to bring up real quick Michael Crow the president of Arizona State you know some presidents aren't that involved in the athletics he is very involved in athletics he um is probably the most prominent voice in the Pac-12 among the Pac-12 Presidents. A lot of people say he was the reason Larry Scott stayed in power for as long as he did. And there's no question. His, his, you know, I've talked to people who uh, work at ASU, and that new leadership model that that press release is in keeping with just Michael Crow's approach to everything. Everything at ASU academically is always framed around how they're the innovators, how they're going to reinvent things. So, I mean, I think he was probably. In fact, I know he was. This was not a, entirely a Ray Anderson thing. Like Michael Crow was definitely involved in the hiring and, and approval of Herm Edwards. So, um, and I would all, uh, the other thing I was told is that, you know, he was very, uh, you know, made a really big deal about how serious they were about taking COVID protocol seriously last year on the campus and, and how well they did completely uh, giving an FU to that. So um, I, I don't think this is going to end well for people there. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, 
even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Stu, uh, we're going to pivot a little bit. Last week, there was news about the playoff possibly expanding to 12 teams. There's a big meeting coming up. What do our listeners need to know? So last week, the the working group, the four people who had apparently, in total secret, and credit to them for keeping this a secret from the media for two years, had spent two years uh, hashing out this, this proposed format. Uh, as we're recording this, all of the commissioners are in Chicago for two days of meetings, and that's where they're going to have their first, you know, kind of open discussion and debate over what was proposed. And then next week in Dallas, that same group will meet with the presidents, a, bo- a group of presidents who are basically the board of the CFP, not expecting them to come out of those meetings having signed, sealed, and delivered anything. Uh, basically, they just need to give the sign off and say, you know, we want we, we want you to keep pursuing this. We want you to, to make this happen. So, and, and everybody in the industry, you know, um, the, nobody thinks that Greg Sankey and Jack Swarbrick and, and Bob, these very prominent figures would have gone on a national teleconference with the media touting all the great things about a 12-team playoff if they thought there was any chance that the presidents were going to come and say, no, 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 we're staying at four. I think everybody expects this is the model and it will happen, but it's going to take all summer and possibly into the fall to nail down all the details, to you know, have to rework contracts possibly with ESPN and the Bulls. So it's a long process from here. But in, in you know, we've spent a lot of time in the last week making calls, talking to people around the industry. And I, what I get the sense is that it's very popular. Like they, they put a lot of thought into it and people are very impressed with the overall proposal. The one element that's kind of controversial and took people by surprise is that the quarterfinals would be played at bowl games. I think people assumed that those would be on campus, that bowl games, which have really they lost. just can't quit them. They just can't quit the habits. I mean, it's 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 amazing because the bowls have. Th- this is not the days of 10, 15 years ago of John Junker at the Fiesta Bowl you know, running up those huge expense account, like the Bulls don't have nearly the power they used to. And yet, you know, you listen to Bob Bowlesby on that call, talk about the sanctity and the tradition. And, and yeah, I, I agree with you. I they, they can't quit them. My story that went up on The Athletic on Thursday gets into some of the reasons why they people feel like they can't quit them. One is just flat out, they're in contracts with them until 2026. And if they want to do this sooner, 
they may have no choice but to honor those contracts. But also, you know, just it is, you know, as much as people mock the, and I know you hate it when they do, mock the uh, lower level bowls uh, as, you know, glorified exhibitions or whatnot, it is, it, is, it is important for them to keep that going and keep that healthy because at the end of the day, even in a 12-team playoff, you're talking about 9% of the FBS teams are going to be in this thing in any given year. And I would say it's an even smaller percentage of teams that will regularly go to the CFP. So that leaves a whole lot of schools that still need something meaningful to play for at the end of the year. Um, so it is important to them to keep the bowl system going. And maybe they feel that if they had, if they were to kick the, the rose and the fiesta and the sugar and everything out completely, that the trickle down effect would just kill the other bowls. Uh, um, that's a, that's a, that's a possibility. Um, I also just get the sense that the idea of, you know, our colleague Andy Staples definitely, you know, leading the charge on this. Dan Wetzel, who wrote Death to the BCS a decade ago, they 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 really love the idea of Alabama. You know, Flo- let's say Florida has to go up and play uh, Wisconsin in the bitter cold. I love and the idea of that. I think I a lot of fans love the idea. I think a lot of people love the idea of that. I don't know that commissioners feel all that strongly about that, though. I mean, AD doesn't. Yeah, because the commissioners outside of Kevin Warren. Um, you know, like Greg Sankey probably doesn't love it because you just, well, you mentioned Florida, which is obviously, it's not, you know, there's probably worse weather states in his footprint in terms of that. But like, yeah, it takes, it, it puts them at a disadvantage to go, if you're going to go play a game against Wisconsin, like I covered a, a Packers Vikings playoff game in January. I mean, it's an awesome place to be. Um, but you know, I'm not playing in the game and I'm not somebody who grew up in a warm weather state. So it's, I kind of get that part of it. But to me, you know, that should be part of football. It's part of the NFL and the Bucks went up to Green Bay last year and won. And, um, but I, the interesting thing about Sankey being one of the authors of this is that I, I know for sure that the ADs in his conference are probably more than any other not on board with it. Uh, because, they look at this as a chance to, you know, co- college football attendance has been in decline for a decade or more. Even at the, you know, even the Alabamas, even the, the, the George, like everybody has trouble filling their stands, especially for those early non-conference games. And for them, if, they're, if they knew that going into a year, given any given year, you know, that they felt like they have a pretty good chance to finish high enough to host a playoff game, that becomes part of the enticement to buy a season ticket. You know, buy your season tickets. You will have first dibs on playoff tickets. But under this proposal, yeah, four teams, you would have to be specifically seated five through eight to get one of those. If you're higher, you don't get one of those. You go straight to the to the bowl part of it. So I think it's very clunky, and I think the logistics of it are daunting. And I think that even if they do it, they'll get three years into it and be like, this isn't sustainable. Um, but as of now, I think that the support for it among the commissioners is much stronger than maybe people would realize. Let me ask you a question, an inside baseball question. You know, I talked about this a little bit offline, but I had kind of picked your brain more on it. Uh, our pal Ross Dellinger of SI.com had a fascinating story he did two days ago about how this had been in the works for actually a long time. Yeah. And it was kept under wraps and credit to Ross for... Uh, bringing it to light I'm curious like you know we both talk to a lot of people in college athletics 
this was not, you know, there was a lot of people involved in this. Like, how surprised are you that it was kept under wraps to this degree? And, like, I want to, I, I want to, like, take a question beyond that, which is almost like, what does that tell you about how, where I'm going with this is last year around this time, we kind of realized how fractured the leadership of college football was, right? It was every man or every leader, every person for themselves, every conference for themselves, right? That's To me, that was one of the takeaways from all that. Um, and yet, this was like, seemed to be a, seemed to be a very concerted effort where everybody was all on board. Uh, so I don't know exactly how I'm trying to phrase the question to you, but like, what is your read on how they were able to kind of keep that under wraps the way they were and present such a unified voice on something that is rarely unified? Yeah, uh, I think that it is, I can't emphasize enough how different this process has been that, you know, I covered years and years of, of BCS meetings. You know, I can remember being at a, at a hotel in South Florida in 2008 when Mike Slive first proposed, uh, they don't even call it a playoff at the time, a plus one. Nobody would dare utter playoff. Um, I was in, it covered all the meetings in 2012 that led to the 14 playoff. It was nothing like this. It was all, you know, public leaks. Uh, you know, they basically like, like they were, I guess what I would say was it was very adversarial. Jim Delaney wanted what was best for the Big Ten. Mike Sly wanted what was best for the SEC and everybody had their agenda and it was just kind of it was very college football. It was very disorganized and chaotic, kind of like what we saw with COVID last summer. This has been much more organized. I think they picked the right four people to, to you know, it wasn't the, if I think if the whole group had been working on it the whole time, it would have leaked out. You picked four people. They swore themselves to secrecy. Um, lots of smoke screens along the way. You know, Greg Sankey up until this year, every time you, he was asked about it, I like four teams. I'm fine with four teams. And apparently all the while he was, plotting out they in Ross's story said at one point they talked about 24 teams um so they did a very good job of that and then I really do think I don't want to sound cheesy but it's really the first time in all my time covering this that they put together something where it seems like they genuinely looked out for what's best for the sport not just what's best for them because it's not best for the power five to give the group of five not only to give the group of five a, a birth but to leave open the possibility that they might take a berth from the Power Five if you know one of the Power Five champs is too low. But how is this? How is this? Aside from the part about home home games versus bowl games, if you're the SEC, you go from having a chance. You're not. You're probably not getting two. You're rarely getting two teams. Now you may get four. I think twelve teams is definitely better for the SEC than eight. No question right. about that. Yeah. But twelve teams is also good for everybody else that's trying to get. Um, you know, I mean, the Big Ten has a, is, is a realistic one to send multiple teams. It's great for the group of five. Uh, last year, they had two. They would have had two uh, in this in the in the playoffs. So they found something that everybody that that's good for the SEC. That's good for the Big Ten. That's good for the Pac twelve. It's good for yeah. It's it's seems to be good for everybody. The only thing that I you know, and I mentioned this before, and I don't know how much this will be an issue or not. It's just it's more games for players to play and. But, you know, look, with NIL there, there's more visibility and more opportunity because as we're talking about now, some of these games in late October, November should have more marketability, more visibility for them. So I think that seems to be a win-win. I mean, um, I think if you're a player for 
for Iowa and and you're not necessarily a high round draft pick and now you get a chance instead of going to the Outback Bowl to play in the playoff you're not going to be all that worried about I have to play extra games I think if you're you know uh name the Alabama star player or the Clemson star player or the Georgia star player who has serious NFL aspirations who is going to play in this thing maybe every year of their career or almost every year of their career you know that's a whole different that's a different animal and I didn't think that the commissioners on that call last week I thought their answers when we asked them about player safety and length of the right. their answers were not satisfactory I don't think in this climate where I mean literally the day we're recording this there's like the 18th uh, Congress hearing about NIL and you know you player got- safety, athlete safety, and is a huge issue on that front for them. Absolutely, so. and and the athletes obviously are more emboldened and aware than they ever have been. We saw that during COVID about they're they're very aware that they are kind of you know like all the lengths that they went through to play the football season last year were in t- you know in large part about we can't lose the money, we can't lose the money, so. To your point, I think if they do this, they're going to have to find a way for the athletes to be compensated for those extra games. And it may be that NIL is the way to do that, that it won't, because there's, we're not, you know, nobody is remotely entertaining the idea of paying players a salary or, you know, anything where the schools are, are writing a check to their players, or even if the NCAA is writing, you know, but could it be that, that come 2023, uh, everybody who plays in the All-State Sugar Bowl gets an, gets an appearance fee, and I'm using air quotes right now, an appearance fee from All-State. Uh, that, that they're like, a, you know, at least for one game, that they're kind of like a influencer for All-State. Yeah, yeah, spokesperson. That could be a possibility. But I, I don't think, I think they will be met with fierce resistance from Congress, state politicians. There will be lawsuits if they just say, all right, this is the system. You could play 17 games and amateurism, amateurism, amateurism. That's just not going to fly uh, in the current climate. All the while that these, the, you know, the, these stories have been dominating the news cycle in college football, I mean, uh, we talked about Michigan and, and Bo Schembechler last week, and that has not let up. There was another round of, of protests, and you're seeing more former Michigan athletes come forward um, to say they were abused by that doctor, uh, to um, to to point to, to you know just the horror of the fact that Michigan had so many opportunities to stop this and 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 didn't. Um, and now there's obviously in terms of the the football program aspect of it, there's calls to remove the Bo Beckler statue and to rename Beckler Hall. And I'm always a little leery of, of wading into that when it's somebody else's campus. What what I'm starting to wonder about with this thing is, where's Jim Harbaugh in all this? Um, he he had one comment a little while ago, kind of you know saying defending Bo Beckler. Bo Beckler is was his undisputed mentor, uh, the guy he styles himself after as Michigan's football coach. And as this goes on, and as more comes out, uh, as the face of Michigan football, like he'll go to Big Ten media days, he'll get asked about this. How does he respond to this in a way where I'm sure he doesn't want to step on? He may truly believe that Bo Schembechler did nothing wrong, but there's a danger there of going to bat for him and and looking like you're just being completely uh, unsympathetic to the victims. 
right? I, I do think this is a unique dynamic in that, like you and I talked about whatever parallels there are to Penn State and Joe Paterno where, you know, Bo Schembechler has been an iconic figure in college football and especially tied to the University of Michigan. The team, the team, the team. There are so many people, not just former players, but even people we we know, you know, in media circles who have spent a lot of time around Michigan. And so there's a reverence there. Well, as people are trying to reconcile that, it's it's kind of unique in that even though Bo Schimbeckler has been gone for a long time and this doctor has been gone for a long time, you have a head coach who in large part was brought back to his alma mater because of his connection and his affinity and all things Bo Schimbeckler. And so as we've seen, Jim Harbaugh is kind of an unpredictable guy when it comes to what he says in front of a microphone too. Um, I... I'm very, you know, like fascinated by this dynamic as it's relating because, um, you know, we've seen a, a lot of former standout players at, at, you know, at Michigan, people who are now 20 years removed from their playing careers, speaking up. And the story as, you know, our story on, on the site is we're not quitting. Robert Anderson survivors demand action from Michigan. Uh, Jim Harbaugh is going to, as you said, going to be back in the spotlight. Some people I've talked to about in the last week about the Schembechler story and how it's being handled by the college football media. Uh, you know, I had this conversation with somebody last, I don't know, last Thursday, and they were like, "Well, it's in the, it's happening in the off season, and you know, games are not going to be played for a couple of months." And as you pointed out, you, you know, one of the not one of the only times it's been in the news, but one of the flashpoints where it was in the news, where there was a press conference, happened the same day as the CFP announcing that there was movement towards a 12-team playoff. Now, that that news comes and goes. The ugliness of the Michigan scandal is not going away. Um, does what, what is Jim Harbaugh's answer is going to be to this when he is going to be asked about it? And he is going to be asked about it. I think he's going to be asked about it more than one time. As you said, Big Ten Media Days announced that it's going to be um, in Indianapolis like a month from now, a little more than a month from now. That is going to come up. I mean, Bo Schembechler was not just any other former coach. And his relationship with Jim Harbaugh is not just, I mean, it is much different. And so, um, you know, does what Jim Harbaugh say, if it's from the heart, does that end up inflaming the situation further and causing even more, um, uh, you know, even more headlines and even more attention? Because Jim Brandstatter, who at least, you know, people in the Big Ten probably know of, is a longtime voice of Michigan football. He gave some comments, I think they were to the Detroit Free Press earlier in the week, that certainly, you know, you know uh, inflamed a lot of people. In terms of, uh, you know, like questioning the timeline of of Schembechler's son as one as one of many of the accusers, and so how does Jim Harbaugh handle this publicly? It's it's going to be something to keep an eye on. It's I, I don't know how he'll handle it, but it's gonna it's gonna um, 
it's going to be a lot different than it's going to have a lot different impact than the radio voice saying something or pretty much anybody else connected to Michigan football. It's almost a situation where, you know, if the current Michigan football coach was, you know, when Rich Rodriguez was the Michigan football coach, I give somebody from the outside who has no previous ties to that era. um, That would probably be a little bit less messy than a guy who played for Bo Beckler, models his whole program after Bo Beckler. Uh, basically moved into the neighborhood that Bo used to live in to try to kind of almost like get that same feel of what it's like Bo's existence was to coach the the Michigan Wolverines. I mean, it's really like um, it's a very unique dynamic that I don't think there's quite anything like it um, in college football right now. And you've got, unfortunately, sadly, tragically, hundreds and hundreds of of uh victims out there from this doctor and and you know they weren't certainly weren't all michigan football players by any means but they now know or they've now heard from several of bo schembechler's players not just his son who the family has come out and disputed other you know non-family member michigan football players who said they told bo schembechler about this and were disregarded um you're gonna have a whole lot of people out there that if the face of Michigan football tries to defend this guy or certainly worse than that tries to, you know, like, like some other people don't question the credibility of the people bringing these forth, that that's not going to go well. So I, I, I don't, um, I don't pretend to know how that's going to play out. Uh, but you know, to me that, to me, that's more, I guess, you can take down the statue, you can rename the football building. Those things to me are just symbolic. It's how does Michigan football deal with this, this you know, drastic um, tra- this, this tragedy and how it's impacted the legacy of the guy who is the face of Mich- was the face of Michigan football for so long. You know, Penn State in many ways is still dealing with that or, or has been for a long time in terms of you know, they brought in James Franklin, who has no uh, connection to, to that era and who has for years had to deal with the fact that there's still a fraction of that fan base. I don't know how big it is that still reveres Joe Paterno and, you know, um, resents that he does things differently than Joe Paterno, did, et cetera, et cetera. So this is going to impact Michigan football, I think, for a long time. All right. Well, we've run out of time for this week. We will open the mailbag next week. I'm sure you guys have a lot of questions about the playoff. Um, I would encourage you to go on The Athletic where we've written eight gazillion articles about the playoff, including a QA and a uh, Nicole Auerbach and I did with the subscribers that answered a lot of those questions. But uh, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.